Hosea chapter 12. I believe it's on page 758 in the Bibles, in the pew pads, in the pews, in the chairs. We don't have pews, these are chairs. They're like pews. Just a few more chapters in Hosea. We'll be moving into the holiday season, which is just crazy to think about. And we will be studying the songs of Christmas for Advent season. And so anxiously looking forward to all of our time spent in God's Word. Hosea chapter 11, uh, we're actually going to start in verse 12 of chapter 11 and end in verse 13 of chapter 12. This is God's holy word to us this morning. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return and hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, I will make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and though the prophets and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrificed bulls. Their altars are also like heap, stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was guarded. Let's pray. Father, yet again, there are some things here difficult to understand and even yet to apply to our lives, but this is your holy word, your God-breathed message to us. And so, Lord, as the prophet Hosea was your mouthpiece to the people of Israel, Lord, may your word read this morning be a mouthpiece from you to us. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lies, deceit, trifling with false gods, chasing after the wind, the multiplication of sin and violence, shameful covenants with pagan nations. This is the depth of sin to which God's people had sunk to during the time of Hosea. 
the people of God at this point are seemingly beyond hope and certainly beyond saving. They seem worthless. So we asked this last week and we keep asking again, why does God even bother? Why does God waste his time on an ungrateful, an unfaithful people? Why does he do it? Well, the answer is this. Because he is Yahweh. Look in verse 5. When it says that God met Israel, Jacob, and spoke to him, and he said his name is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's the proper name of God, Yahweh. He's the God of hosts. And Yahweh is his memorial name. He is the God Almighty. He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who is merciful. He is the God who pursues justice. And he's the God who does everything for the glory of his name. He is the awesome God who is the exact opposite of the people of Israel that we're talking about here. God is going to do whatever he wants to do to bring glory to himself. And in the life of Israel during, the, during Hosea's time, he's going to bring glory to his name by showing mercy to God's people and disciplining them at the same time. And so you may have noticed as we were reading through Hosea chapter 12 that it's really a sermon. It's a sermon that was being preached by the prophet Hosea to God's people. He is exhorting the people and he's applying God's word to their time, to what's going on. And he's making illustrations from the Old Testament to show them this. You will notice how Hosea's sermon goes back into biblical history and begins to talk about certain biblical historical events and the life and character of certain patriarchs that you've learned in Sunday school since you were a child. And yet he's taking these events and he's applying them to modern times. Again, he's preaching to his people. And these are the lessons being preached by Hosea to draw God's people back to faith and repentance. And so he's calling us to look back. But Hosea 12 is not just a call to look back. It's a call to look forward as well. It's a call to us. How are we to look back at biblical history? How are we to look at these biblical historical events in the Bible and apply them to our lives? How was God working then and how is he working now? How is he calling us to faith and repentance? And that's what Hosea 12 is. It's lessons of love and mercy from a faithful God. Lessons of love and mercy from a faithful God. Yahweh God, the God Almighty, the God of hosts. So we'll see these lessons through the biblical historical events of of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we'll see this through the Exodus, that great historical event the Bible talks about over and over and over, and also through the life of Moses. So those are the three peaks back into history that we're going to, to look at to see the lessons that God has for us here. And so the first lesson is from Jacob. We see in verse 2 that the Lord has an indictment. Again, he's coming to discipline his people because of their sin. And he says he's going to punish Jacob according to his ways. 
Why does God call out a single person, a single man here? Well, who is Jacob? Let me just remind you. It was in Genesis chapter 12 that God came to a wandering Aramean named Abram. And God made these awesome promises to Abram, these promises that were really beyond anyone's imagination. And in these promises that were made to Abram, his name was therefore changed to Abraham. And Abraham would become the father of many nations. He would become the father of the nation Israel. And so it, uh, Abraham, in turn, had Isaac. And Isaac, in turn, had Jacob. And it was Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. God liked to do that back then. He liked to change a lot of people's names. And their names had biblical, symbolic meaning. And so Jacob, now called Israel, he had 12 sons. And Jacob's 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. The life of Israel, we're talking about Jacob here, can be described as anything but boring. Hosea, uh, being the anointed preacher that he was, speaking to God's people, he used the life of the man Israel to illustrate what the life of the people Israel was like. All the stories and all the things about the man Israel, again, we're talking about Jacob here, the same person, illustrates what the life of Israel, the people, was like. And so Hosea actually alludes to three different episodes, three different stories in the life of Jacob. And he's using these stories as a basis, again, to call Israel to faith and repentance. So the first episode in Jacob's life was his birth. Look there in verse 3, the first sentence. In the womb, that is in his mother's womb before he was born, he had a twin brother. Can any of the kids help me remember who Jacob's brother was? I've totally forgot. Anybody remember who Jacob's brother was? Esau. Thank you. Oh, I forgot for a minute there. Thank you. Make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. And so even in his mother's womb, he was kind of a rascal. <laughs> and so what Jacob did was... And, his brother Esau was going to be born first, but you could tell from the very beginning he didn't like this because he was holding on to his brother's ankle as his brother was being born. And it was kind of a, a good story from the very beginning how Jacob's life was going to be one marked by deceit and trickery. The word Jacob, the name Jacob means to grasp, to take hold of. And so that's what Jacob was like. He was always grasping, always trying to gain the upper hand over his brother Esau. Like, when he was older, what did he do? He tried to steal his brother's blessing from his father, right? Remember, children, what he did? He put on those goat skins on his, on his arms so his father would fill his arms and think he was his brother Esau. He was a trickster. The deceit of Jacob perfectly describes the religious life of the people of Israel and Judah. They were trying to deceive God by going through the religious motions. 
They were trying to make promises to him, but then they were running around and making covenants with pagan nations. And this did not please God. God told them not to do this. God warned them not to make alliances and marry people from other nations because they would draw them into sin. And so ultimately Israel was deceiving themselves to think that they could get away with their lies and with their unfaithfulness. And so this episode is used to show the deceit and the trickery of God's people. And yet we must remember that we are the same. We must examine ourselves to make sure that we're not just going through the religious motions to pacify God. When life gets tough, or when life just seems easy, you know, everything's hunky-dory and going our way, we must not grasp at other things besides God to find fulfillment. When we do this, we are deceiving ourselves. And so the question we must ask this morning, you must ask yourselves, what are you grasping for to find joy and meaning and purpose? What are you trying to take hold of and and not let go to find that meaning, to find that purpose? And that thing is anything but God. What is it? What is it this morning that is deceiving you? Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a, a liar. Jacob was, as I hear in modern day terminology, a hot mess. Still not sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. And yet, Jacob was blessed. He too was a father of many nations. He too was given amazing blessings and promises and goodness from God. But it wasn't because of his faithfulness. It was because of Yahweh God's faithfulness. That is the first episode in Jacob's life that Hosea is teaching about the second episode we read about in verses 3 and 4. He says in his manhood, that's in Jacob's manhood when he was older, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. This harkens us back to an episode later in Genesis around 30, 31, 32. This story about Jacob wrestling with God or stroving with God is a reference in the time of Jacob's life when he was with his father-in-law Haran in Haran named Laban. His father-in-law Laban had two daughters whom Jacob married, and that was another problem altogether. You should only have one wife, but he took two, disobeying God, Rachel and Leah. And during this time, as he worked for his father-in-law Laban, and he was married uh, to uh, Rachel and and Leah, they had many children. He became very wealthy, had many, uh, many herds, many flocks, many possessions. And so he decided to leave his father-in-law Laban and travel back to his hometown, his homeland, that of Canaan, the promised land. But upon his approach, Jacob begins to get a little scared. He realizes, wait a minute, I'm going back home, and that's where my brother Esau is, and our last meeting was not quite pleasant, because I tricked him and deceived him, 
And so Jacob was fearing retribution from his brother Esau. And so what does he do? As he approaches his brother Esau, he sends out all his possessions to give to him as a gift. You know, take all my cattle, take all my goats, and here's some of my children to, to help you with. He's, he's just kind of sending out all his wealth, hoping to win Esau's favor. What was Jacob doing in this? He was demonstrating that he was trusting only in himself. He was trying to make it all right himself. God called him to go back to the promised land, to Canaan, and he didn't believe that God would take care of him. And so he was going to fix this situation with his money, with his wealth, so that his brother wouldn't be mad at him. And he demonstrated only trusting in himself, not in God. And so what did God do? God sent at night this really amazing yet bizarre and wonderful scene where Jacob is wrestling all night long with an angel. He's wrestling with, with God. And he says he wrestled him all night. And there was even at times it seemed that Jacob was winning. He was beating the angel. And don't get any ideas. I'm pretty sure none of us can beat an angel. He thought he was winning. But then the angel did something devastating. He crippled Jacob's hip. He wounded Jacob. So Jacob was forced to surrender. And so what does he do? He cries out for blessing and favor. He weeps, Hosea says, and that is the account from Genesis. Bless me, God. Don't you get away from me. Bless me. And this is the point Jacob is given a new name, Israel, which means wrestles with God. This story is such an interesting story because it illustrates a very powerful point that Hosea is calling God's people to deal with and we must deal with too. As Jacob wrestled with God, the ESV says he strove with God. He struggled with God. As Jacob wrestled with God, so we are to wrestle with God. It's a call for God's people to wrestle with God. What do, what do I mean by that? That seems like an odd lesson to learn about how to live faithfully for, before God. But that is exactly the point. Because wrestling captures the urgency. It captures the passion. It captures the desire that we must have to, to seek God and to please Him. We must wrestle with Him. The lesson for Israel was to remember Israel, how Jacob pursued a relationship with God even to the point of wrestling with him. That must be the fervor. That must be the intensity which with you must seek your God. You must hold fast to him. You must seek him earnestly in faith and repentance and do not wander away from your God. Seek him. And that's the lesson for us too. Do you seek after God with this amount of intensity? Do you wrestle with God? Maybe this morning life is just hard for you because of the amount of pressure and stress and heartache that you're under. Maybe this morning you're just downright apathetic. I mean, again, you're reminding yourself right now, why am I here again? You're feeling spiritually apathetic. What do you do when you feel this way? What do you do when you're either apathetic and don't care, but you want to care, or you're struggling, 
You're dealing with a lot of heartache and stress. What do you do? You wrestle. We fight. We fight for God's favor. We seek Him out. We pursue a relationship with Him. Because the glory of God is supposed to be an intense pursuit on on our part. And that is why this morning everything that we've done in this worship service is geared to help us pursue God. The word sang, the word read, the word preached, the word demonstrated tangibly before us this morning in the supper. We must wrestle with God and pursue Him. One more episode from Jacob's life, and that is at Bethel. Verse 4, it says, he met God at Bethel, and there God spoke to Jacob and to his people. At Bethel, we find a much older, wiser, more mature Jacob. One who had walked with God and wrestled with God, and one who was not trying to bargain with God or be deceitful or trick God, but one who humbly vowed to live faithfully before Yahweh God. And so at Bethel, the Lord God came to Jacob and again made himself known and upped the ante on his huge promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the lesson from Hosea is this, that we're to seek God as Jacob did in his wiser years. Wait for him, hold fast to him, is what Hosea says. Walk with him. Because at Bethel, God not only revealed himself to be Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the great I Am, God also revealed another part of who he is. He gave him another name. And that is the Hebrew name El Shaddai. I would sing that for you a cappella, but I'm a little raspy this morning. El Shaddai, it's a, it's a beautiful name. It's a wonderful Hebrew name that tells us about the wonderful character of God. What does El Shaddai mean? The closest we can get is it means God Almighty. Or as Hosea says, he's the, he's the God of hosts. Or he's the Lord of armies. He is the powerful, awesome God. He is the one who is powerful enough to accomplish everything he has promised, no matter what. His name teaches Israel that they can trust him. They can put their hope in him because he is El Shaddai. And this is what God does for us. Just when we think we have him figured out, just when we think, we, just because we can give all the right Sunday school answers about him, we've got him figured out. Again, God ups the ante. He makes himself even more wonderful. He shows that he is God Almighty. He can do anything. He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who is merciful. He is the God of steadfast love and kindness, showing wonders, pursuing justice, all for the glory of his name and to extend his blessings upon his people. And so Hosea is saying, O Israel, look to Jacob. Look at what God did there. He will do it for you. But there's more Sunday school, Bible story, illustrations here. Look in verse 7 through 9. We see a lesson from Exodus. 
Many times in our lives, we think that our lives before God must be okay if everything's going well. I mean, if we're not under judgment, we're not depressed, and we're not, uh, you know, if we're financially stable, all these things, we think things are going well. And in these times, we can become arrogant. We can become conceited, just like Israel. We think we've got it all figured out. I mean, I've got a nice portfolio. I've got a good job. My house is almost paid for. Nothing can happen to me now. And that's what Ephraim, who again is Israel, thought of. Look what it says in verse 8. Ephraim thought, boasting before God and everyone, I'm rich. Look at all this wealth I have. Look how hard I work. You won't find any iniquity or sin in my life. This has been the great sin since the beginning of the world. Adam and Eve had, had it made. They thought that they could do whatever they want and no problems, no consequences. But then they were tempted beyond what they could handle. The temptation for them, as it is for us, as it was for Ephraim and Israel, is to be self-reliant, to be self-righteous, and to think that we can live our lives as if we don't need God. Look, I've got it made. So the lesson to be learned here is that self-righteousness will get you nowhere but hell. The hell for Israel was to be sent back into slavery in Egypt. To go back into slavery is the worst. For us, that hell would be separation from God the Father forever. So Yahweh God reminds them in verse 9, he reminds Israel that the only reason that they are not still enslaved in Egypt is because of his grace, because of his love, because of his power over them. He says, I can send you back to living in the tents. You can go back there if I will. And so we must see it is only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be delivered from our sin and its power and our self-righteousness. Yes, we're going to have days of victory. Yes, we're going to have days where the, uh, the tyranny of sin seems to be kept at bay in our lives. But we must overcome this thinking that we did it all by ourselves. We need the rescuing, delivering love of God like the Exodus to save us from the power of sin. We need to seek more of God and less of ourselves. That is what Hosea is teaching. One more lesson from Moses. In verses 10 and verse 13. In verse 10, he says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. And then 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet, he was guarded. Much of the Old Testament and indeed the book of Hosea brings is, is to bring God's kingdom, his rule, his ways to bear through the ministry of the prophets. It was the ministry of the prophets which God spoke to his people and gave his law and his ways. And it was also by a prophet, that is Moses, that God delivered his people from Egypt, from slavery. That's what it means in verse 13. By a prophet, Yahweh brought Israel up from Egypt. It was the prophetic ministry of Moses. 
So what is a prophet? What do they do? A prophet speaks authoritatively to us on God's behalf. A prophet tells people what they must do to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their might. A prophet calls God's people to faith and repentance. And so the lesson learned is that the way of salvation will be taught through the authoritative message of the prophets. Hosea is saying, if Israel, if you would but listen to the prophets and hear God's word from them and obey, then you would experience wonderful, powerful spiritual blessings that God wants to shower on his people. The words of the prophets are the words of God to the Old Testament people. They were the words to hear the clarion call, to listen, to obey, to follow the Lord God, because it is for your blessing that you do this. But we today are like God's people of yesterday. We stubborn, we are stubborn, and we fail to value God's relentless pursuing love to us through his word. And we want to go our own way. But Hosea, like all the prophets, is pointing us toward a greater prophet. Hosea, God's word, is pointing us to a prophet who will deliver God's people forever. And that is Jesus. Because Hosea wasn't the Savior. The prophets were not the Savior. They were looking forward to a greater prophet the one who would be prophet, priest, and king. And so look in verses 10 and 13. As Moses went down to Egypt to deliver his people, there's one greater than Moses, who too would go to Egypt. And he would go to Egypt to escape a mad emperor's plan of infanticide. And he would go to Egypt to be saved and rescued. And like Israel was redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt by the ministry of Moses and Aaron, so the greatest prophet that ever was, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will rescue God's people from their sin. He came up out of Egypt. Salvation came through the one, the one and only who could claim to be prophet, priest. That is who Hosea is pointing us to. That is what these lessons from the Old Testament is pointing to. But there's also a lesson here in front of us this morning. And if I can get a little bit out of order, I'm going to go ahead and explain this to you this morning as we prepare for the supper. This table connects all these lessons for us that we've been learning in the Scriptures. So as you take the bread and the juice this morning, Do this. Wrestle with God. What do I mean by that? Seek Him. Ask Him to bless you. Ask Him to overthrow your rebellious heart. Ask Him to show you your great need of the gospel. Ask Him to bless you. Wrestle with God as you take the elements. Also, as you take the elements, confess your sin, that like Israel, you've been self-righteous. You've tried to rely only on yourself to make yourself right with God. Acknowledge that only Christ can make you right with God. 
as you take the elements, realize that this meal, this meal is a prophetic word to us this morning. This meal reminds us and calls us that through that though we are sinful and though we are rebellious, God has done what we could not do. He has saved us and he has called us to himself through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep these things in mind as you take these elements. But if it is not your time this morning to take the elements, if you have not publicly professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not come to him, if you've, if you've not done this, still do all these things that I've called you to this morning. Pursue God. Look to Jesus. Confess your sin and your great need of a Savior. And give your life to Jesus Christ. If you do that, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that for all your word says, and for all that is before us in this feast, you have spoken to us. You've called us to yourself. You've called us to die to ourselves, to die to self-righteousness, to die to unfaithfulness and deceitfulness and all these ways in which we err. And you've called us to yourself through Jesus Christ our Lord. We praise you and we thank you for these lessons preached to us this morning and help us to even see them deeper as we eat and as we drink. In Jesus' name, amen.